Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Per Gimel, Chapter 3, Rabbi Bini Marilis. In Chapter 3, we finally begin to see the stories of the different judges, the Shoftim, at play. Before we actually get to the first three judges, we get a little bit more background. What's significant about the background in the first six verses, essentially, is the subtleties in some of the language. And we'll point them out as we go, and some of the subtleties as it goes through the course of the rest of the chapter. The chapter begins as follows. These are the nations that God left over to test the Jewish people that had nothing to do per se with the wars with respect to Canaan. That is to say that what we've seen in the past are the nations that the Jewish people left over and here these are the nations that God left over. The Dasofrim makes the comment that what you have here is a split between what you would call spiritual enemies and physical enemies. That is to say that the list of enemies that we've seen in the past are all the Zion Amamim, the seven nations that the Jewish people are set to destroy and required to dismantle. Those are spiritual Enemies that exist in a physical way in the land. However, those to be mentioned here are essentially physical enemies, simply there to test the will of the Jewish people. And they're there to be thorns and thistles and pains in the side and traps for the Jewish people. But they're not necessarily related in any way to the spiritual war. As the text continues and says as follows in verse 2, Rak lemandas doros b'nei Yisrael lelamdam milchama rak lefanim lo yidu'um For reason number one is the notion with respect to teaching the Jewish people how to fight. Because until this point, they had no idea how to fight. Meaning, the Jewish people were fighting wars throughout the book of Yoshua. But the manner in which they're fighting wars is essentially miraculous in nature. They have God fighting for them. And so, even if they, let's say, for example, fought with twigs, they were going to be victorious. Purely on a miraculous plane, the enemy had no chance whatsoever. So real warfare is not something that applies, per se, in that case. Here, however, the Jewish people are coming down a notch, in essence. They're living now in the land as real land dwellers. And therefore, they have to understand that it's not at the same plane in the same place as it was before. Now, that's not to say that it shouldn't have been. But simply by virtue of the fact that what the Jewish people have done and the manner in which they behaved until this point, so this becomes the new reality for our people in the land. 
it seems, the Da Sofim writes in his introduction to the chapter, that it was the intent of God of putting the Jewish people in a position of battle to show them and teach them the different levels within which they can exist in the world. They can exist at the miraculous plane. They can exist in the manner of the Yotzei Mitzrayim, those who left Egypt. Or they cannot, and they'll exist in a regular way. So the first generations didn't know what real warfare were, and now this generation does. And now we begin to see who some of the enemies are in this fashion. Chamesha Sane Plishtim, the five kingdoms or the five uh, provinces of the Plishtim on the coast, which is modern-day Aza. V'chol HaKena'ani, V'hatzidoni, V'hachivi, Yoshev Har Halavanon. These three nations, the Kenanim, a, a sort of Kenanim, the Tzidonim, and the tribe of the Chivi, who are in Har Halavanon, well up into the north, into what would be modern day, modern day Lebanon, Har Halavanon, Mehar Baal Chermon Ad Levochamat, in the areas deep into the north near the Chermon until Levochamat. Chamat is an area far north of uh, Damascus and to the north of uh, Tzidon, which is a city on the coast. This is who is battling now. This is who becomes the the pains for the Jewish people. And now we get a second reason. And they exist essentially to test the Jewish people. Will they listen? to the mitzvot of God, to the commandments of God, that were commanded to their fathers in the hands of Moshe. So all these nations are not nations that they've seen in battle till this point. And they are not nations who per se have an interest um, in capturing land, but they exist simply to cause trouble for the Jewish people. Moving along, here comes a very important text. And the Jewish people dwell bekerev hakinani. What does it mean, bekerev hakinani? What does that text mean, bekerev? It means that they're amongst them, that they don't reign per se in full form and fashion as they possibly should and that they are surrounded in some sense by these other nations. They are neighbors. They are community members. They sit on boards together. The significance of which is what comes in the next text. Remember that we've stated all throughout the book of Yoshua that what he accomplishes is military control of the land. Much of the territory, most of the territory in the land itself the Jews reign over in a military sense. And they have put some of the nations to tax and to work. Such that they, the relationship is not exactly master-servant, but it's one of we're in control and you're not. We have the power and you don't. And so the manner in which behavior is imposed or behavior exists should have been in a certain way, and it's clearly not that way. 
verse 6 is going to show us one very specific example with respect to intermingling of the tribes and intermarriage of the tribes that exist. Verse 6. And they take, they took for themselves the daughters of these people for wives. And their daughters, the daughters of the Jews, were given to the sons of the non-Jews. And And they served their gods. Now again, if you're the power and you're in control and you're of the tribe of the Jews, so then this is not behavior that should be going on. Look at the language. The language is purely in an active mode. The Jews are the ones taking and the Jews are the ones giving. They're taking daughters and they're giving daughters. It's not the reverse. How does that work? How does it come about? So it's not clear. We could perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not so concerned and that it's not meant in any way as in, in a sense of chait, but it's very difficult to grasp. The Dasofrim goes to discuss the notion that the daughters of these Goyim in fact are uh, proper Geirim, although not full-fledged uh, Geirim. It wasn't full form and uh, will in their Geirus, and therefore it leads to many stumbling blocks going on later. But again, it's at the feet of the Jewish people who are at fault. They're the ones who lead this all happening, which also leads to the follow-up is Vayavduas Eloheihem. They serve their gods. The, the, the process is first the intermarriage and then the idol worship. Perhaps thinking, oh, there's no harm, no foul in marrying and intermingling the tribes, when the reality is that it leads to intermarriage. So that sets up where we are, and we bring in our first shofet, our first judge, who is someone we've met before, Adnil ben Kenaz, the younger brother of Kaled ben Yefuna of the tribe of Yehuda. Keeping that in mind. And we begin. The first cycle, as it were, that we mentioned before, of the Jews stumbling and being bad, leading to them being sold out, to the leader uh, being established, to them being saved, appears here. Verse 7. The Jewish people, for the moment, will say the Jewish people simply do that which is bad in the eyes of God. And they forget their God, and they worship and they serve Baal and Asherah. They serve these two forms of uh, of idol worship. Is it everybody? It's not everybody. Is it a large percentage of people? I don't know that it's a large percentage of people necessarily either. The Das Ophim writes that what happens here is as follows. Everyone is responsible. It was possible for the Jewish people to stop such a thing. By virtue of the fact that we see later on that they revert away from this and head back towards Torah and Mitzvos, you see that it's possible for them to control this situation, but in fact they don't. So you do that which is bad in the eyes of God. They forget God. Now what exactly does it mean that they forget God? It's not abundantly clear from the text. 
But perhaps it means that they're not 100% careful with, um, with Torah and mitzvot. That they're forgetful of halacha. We know the famous notion that in the aftermath of the death of Moshe Rabbeinu, a, a certain amount of halacha is forgotten. Perhaps now in the aftermath of the death of Yehoshua and all of the Zekenim, that something like that happens. They simply, they're not clicking on all cylinders, quote-unquote, um, in relation to God. And all things are not working with respect to that. And they're stumbling. And they begin to worship idols. Now, it's not clear that they're worshiping idols in exclusion of God, or, as we mentioned, the notion of some sort of a partnership, a, a two-pronged service mechanism, serving God and the non-Jewish God, gods. Nonetheless, they clearly have angered HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And now, step two in the process, God gets very angry. Here, they're sold out. The Jewish people are sold out to an enemy. They're sold out to this man named Kushan. Rishasayim, he is twice bad, I guess is the literal translation of Rishasayim, the king of Aram Naharayim. Aram Naharayim, if you remember from Chumash, from, uh, from Sefer Bereshis, Aram Naharayim is well, well to the north. It's a, a place where our forefathers come from. It's a place where Avraham perhaps is. It's a place where Yaakov Avinu spends some time. Well to the north. So Kushan travels a great distance to be a pain in the side for the Jewish people. Eight years. Eight years. The Gemara and some of the commentaries mention here that Kushan is some form of a descendant of Lavan. Lavan Ha'arami, which is a very interesting... Uh, Factor and layer to the story. If in fact he is from Lavan, that you have a, a a grandchild of Yaakov now fighting with a grandchild of Lavan once again. Interesting to note. So they worship him, or they serve him for eight years, and now what happens? Boom. So step three in the process, they cry out, right? They, they, they suffering and they're crying out to God with respect to the situation. And now, boom, God establishes the first of the Shoktev. He establishes for them a Moshia, a Savior. And He saves them. The younger brother of Kalev, Adniel ben Kenaz, the great Torah sage, the great Talmud Chacham. He's a Moshiach. A Moshiach is a term we'll see a few times in our text. What does it mean that he's a Moshiach? A Moshiach is essentially, uh, he's some sort of a spiritual savior. He brings some sort of a uh, spiritual salvation to the Jewish people. The Dasofram says it's similar to a uh, notion, like a, like the term that we'll use for a Moshiach. He's going to, his person is establishing some sort of a salvation 
to the Jewish people. So what Neil ben Kenaz is the first of the saviors, and he saves the people. Now, how does he do that? Verse 10 explains how he goes about his business. The, the Spirit of God in some form rests on him. Since he's a Neil, we can say maybe perhaps it's Ruach HaKodesh. He's close to the original. He's close to the source. First, Vayishpot Es Yisrael. First, he judges the Jewish people. Then, Vayetze Lamilchama. Then he goes out to war. Vayitein Adonai Biyado Es Kushan Rishasayim Melech Aram. And God gives into his hands Kushan Rishasayim. Vataz Yado Kushan Rishasayim. And he overpowers and he strengthens and he is the, 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 the force against um, Kushan Rishasai. But it's important to understand the process here. Verse Vayishpot. Right? Zasofram and others explain. First Vayishpot. He judges the people. He establishes what is fundamentally wrong with the Jews. He judges them. Then he goes out to war. Then he goes out to war. Now, what kind of war it is can be taken in two approaches. A could be approach number one, legitimately goes out to war like any other battle, and Aniel is the leader of the Jewish army. Or perhaps he goes to war against what he judged, in a different sense and understanding of the text. And then, boom, by virtue of either way, Kushan is given into his hands. Notice also subtly the process of the naming of Kushan. First, you have Kushan Rishasai Melech Aram Naharayim in verse number uh, uh, 8. Then you have Kushan Rishasai Melech Aram again. Now it's only the Melech Aram, not Melech Aram Naharayim. Okay. And then it's Kushan Rishasai. He's no longer king. So it's sort of processional um, from his status initially as a king to a status simply as this guy Kushan who loses a war to Adnil ben Kenaz. And then Batishko Ta'aretz Arbi'im Shanah in verse 11, the process ends, and the land is quiet for 40 years, and Atniel dies. How the 40 years are calculated, and how any of the years are calculated here, is the subject of an interesting debate. Are the eight years, let's say in this case, that they served Kushan part of the 40? Or is it eight years and then 40? Similarly, when we get to Ehud, who's next, is that the period of X number of years of shibut, of servitude, and then the remaining years are quiet. In his case, it was a total of 80. Or are they completely separate numbers? It's an X number of years of servitude, and then the 80 years of, of quiet. So that's the subject of a discussion, sort of understanding exactly how many years of quiet, in fact, there are. Anil passes. He doesn't leave an official follower, an initial... Uh, person to, to, to supplant his place as the Shofet. But Lamai said that the Jewish people are following. So what's there to be worried about? What's there to be concerned about? There should be nothing to fear. But they stumble again. Verse Yud Beis, you begin to see the second evolution and the second cycle with respect to the Jews. And now it's worse. Once they've already been bad, once they've already done Avodazara and Gilearias, whatever the case may be, and they've returned from that, they don't return exactly to level one that they were before. They come close. But when they fall, they stumble worse. So now when it says in verse Yudbeis, 
and talking about the period that's going to be Ehud, which is the largest section of the chapter, see where the Jewish people are. And the Jewish people continue to do that which is bad in the eyes of God. They emotive, they add on to what they've already done which is bad. Notice it doesn't tell us specifically what they do bad here, but that they did bad. That's like enough, right? And now, so the process has, has begun. They're, the Jewish people are acting poorly. Now it's Melech Moab al Yisrael. Why is Eglon now on the Jewish people? Because they did bad in the eyes of God. Not because of the strength of Eglon on his own, but simply virtue of the behavior of the Jewish people dictates how they're going to be and where they're going to be and their status with respect to other nations. Take a moment to focus on Eglon. Eglon is the Melech Moab. Moab to this point has been incredibly quiet. They have not attacked the Jews. They have not been involved with the Jews since the time of Bilam in the time of Balak. Also keep in mind, and this will come up in uh, later, later verses, that Moab has some semblance of reverence for the God of the Jews. Their battle, the Dat Sofer will write later, is the fact that the Jews were chosen and not them. It's not a hate for God. It's a significant point. We'll come back to it in a moment. But Eglon here is the Melech Moab. So watch the flow here. You have a descendant of Lavan battling with the Jews. His adversary is a child of Yehuda. Now you have a descendant of Moab, which is a descendant of Lot, fighting with the Jews. And the Shofet involved here, Ehud, is from the tribe of Binyamin, a child of Yosef. Very interesting what's going on here under the surface of the text. In verse 13, not only is it Moab, but it's also Ammon. Ammon, the cousin, right? The relative of Moab, also of Lot. And Amalek. Amalek is a grandson of Esav. See, all of these things sort of coming together in these battles with the Jewish people under the text, under the surface of what's going on here. They go and they hit the Jewish people. They attack the Jewish people. They're victorious against the Jewish people. And they take, they inherit, as a result of what they do, they take one city. Keep in mind where Moab is, and keep in mind now where Ir HaTimarim is. Moab is the area to the south of Reuven, on the eastern side of the Yam HaMelech, the Dead Sea. So, the territory that they take is a place called Irat Tzmarim. Irat Tzmarim has classically always been known as Yericho. The area is in Yericho. They take one city. Now we could say, what's the harm in them taking one city? But the reality of it is, two things. One, what city did they take? Is the first city that the Jews captured when they came in with Yoshua. That's first. And second of all, they took a city at all. It's the first time that territory has been taken back from the Jews when it had been conquered by them in the first place. 
that has significance of infinite value to the non-Jewish populations, to the non-Jewish armies that surround in different areas. And particularly here, we have the children of Moab, the children of Ammon, the children of Amalek, the children of Lot, the children of Esau, battling with the children of Yaakov, the children of Yitzchak, the children of Avram. It has sort of more metaphysical meaning as well. Verse 14, 18 years. So the first one was 8 years. Now it's 18 years that Eglon is in play in the story. And now, stage 3. Verse 15, the Jews cry out to God. They, God establishes for them a savior, Ehud ben Geira, from the tribe of Binyamin, Ish Iter Yadmino, he is a lefty. So Ehud ben Geira is our Sophate, and he I'm sorry, and he is a Moshia, he is our Savior, and he is from the tribe of Binyamin, and he is a lefty. The significance of which is later on. The text is foreshadowing. They'll have another one in a moment with respect to Eglon. But here they're foreshadowing with respect to the fact that it's a lefty. So what do they do? How, what is their, what's, what's the plan here? It can be taken one of two ways. And let's set up this rest of the story of, Eglon, uh, of Ehud and, and, and we'll go forward. What happens in the, fo- in the following set of verses is that Ehud and some group go to Eglon and they bring a gift. Then at some point, Ehud separates himself from the group. They return back to the land and Ehud goes back to Eglon to speak with him and ultimately to kill him. It could be taken one of two ways. Either that Ehud goes with the group with this in mind and never tells them, or rather that he goes with the group and this is part of the ruse, that in fact the gift is part of the ruse and not simply just a gift to, to Eglon, but rather part of a setup of Eglon leading ultimately to his death. Either way, let's see the story. They send with him a gift to Eglon. Before going, verse 16 tells us that Ehud makes for himself a weapon. A small weapon, but a two-edged weapon. He makes for himself a sword. And it has two points. And it's the size of an ama, about 18 inches long. Not very big. Perhaps at most 18 inches long. And he ties it to himself on his right thigh. Keep in mind why. He's a lefty. Most people are not lefties. So if they're patting him down, if they're looking for a weapon, they're expecting a weapon, it's going to be on his left side. It wouldn't be on his right side. So by virtue of the fact now that it's on his right side, they're not looking for it, he can easily unsheath the weapon when he needs to and do what he needs to do. The story continues. And he brings the gift close to Eglon. Why not allow him bring a gift? It's a gift to the, the ruling power in the location. And Eglon is a very large man. Fat. Obese. Overweight. 
They bring the gift and they leave. The group that brought the gift leaves. They go away. And he goes back by himself. Ehud ben Gera goes back by himself towards the house of Eglon. And he goes by way of the quarry, the area where they're cutting stone for other, for the idols. Hushabin Apsilim Asher Es HaGilgal Vayomer, and he says, Devar Seiser Li Elecha HaMelech I have something to tell you, king, of a secret to tell you. Vayomer Has Stop, wait Vayitzumei Lav Kola Omdim Alav Everyone has to leave. Here's something he needs to tell him. It has to be spoken to him specifically. It's a secret matter that has to be dealt with him for his ears only. Eglon clears the room. And now it sets up. So we have Eglon sitting on his throne on a raised platform, which we're about to see in a moment. We have Ehud, who now has to tell him some very important secret. He has to tell him up close so he's able to hear it and only he can hear it. And now he draws close. And Ehud now goes for it. He's sitting on some sort of a raised platform. It's cooler air in that in that region, Rashi writes. I have a word from God for you. stands. mentioned before the people of Moab have reference for God. Eglon stands. Now he's a very heavy man. So in his actions of standing is a process. And that's when Ehud goes for the attack. Eglon stands. And he stabs him in the belly. He reaches with his left hand, he takes the sword, he stabs him in the belly. Parenthetically, by virtue of the fact that Eglon stood up for the word of God, he is rewarded. Rashi makes the point, that Rus is a descendant of Eglon by virtue of the fact that he had respect for the name of God. Standing up, Rus comes from him. Okay. Anyway, he gets stabbed in the belly here. In verse 22, He stabs him to the point where the entire knife goes into the belly until up to the handle. And the fact of the person encompasses the knife. He did not, No, he did not remove the knife from his belly. And it comes out in the rear. By virtue of the fact that it comes out in the rear, it'll help us understand the next set of psukim where his servants don't come in because they feel and they believe that Ehud, uh, that Eglon is in fact uh, relieving himself. And the smell from the room implies that in fact he is relieving himself. So Ehud stabs him in a way that the knife cannot be removed and he simply bleeds out, he bleeds to death. But nobody knows. Ehud leaves, 
virtue of the hallway, and he closes the door and he locks the door with the key. Verse 23. Verse 24, leaves. The servants come. Remember, by virtue of leaving the knife in, Ehud does not in fact get bloodied himself. The servants see that the doors are locked. They say, Ah, he must be uh, going going to the bathroom. He must be using the facilities. We're not going to bother him. They wait until what would essentially literally means an embarrassing amount of time. Too much time. Eglon is not coming out. They take another key and they open the door. And there they see that their master has fallen on the ground dead. And all this time passing, Ehud has uh, escaped. He's gone back. But watch the way Ehud escapes. Very smart. Ehud left. Right, He gets away through the point by which they are shocked until they come upon the king. And he goes back the way he came. He goes back to Derek of the quarry. And he disappears, he runs away into the forest. Now Ehud returns to the nation, and he gets his army ready to go to battle. He stands on the mountain, he calls out, he blows the shofar. And B'nai Yisrael come down from the mountains and he's ahead of them. Chase after me, follow me, pursue after me, because God has given over the enemy into our hands. They follow after him. They surround the area, they cut off the pass to Moab via the Yardain, they get no one allowed to cross. Remember that they had attacked and taken Irat Marim, the areas near Yericho. So here now, they've cut off the pass through the Jordan River, and they've cut off the Moabite community from returning home, from running away. Nobody gets away. Almost 10,000 people, nobody gets away, whether they were soldiers or there were other um, overweight individuals, as the text seems to imply. Nobody gets away. Moab is put under the hand of the Jewish people for many, many years. At that point, and the land is quiet for 80 years. And in the last text, we get the third of the Shoftim, Bacharav Hayash Shamgar Ben Anas, who we hear very little about, is a gentleman named Shamgar. We get one, one verse on him, and we see he battles with another army. Here he battles with somebody completely unconnected. Bayach as Plishtim, Sheish Meos Ish. He battles with the Plishtim. The Plishtim we said are on the coast. We'll certainly hear about them more. He fights with the Plishtim. It's the first interaction really with the Plishtim at all. And he attacks them and he beats them to the tune of 600 people. Bimalmar habakar. Without any real weapons. With uh, weapons, with tools, utensils that people used to teach the animals how to work the fields. 
And he also saves the Jewish people. It would seem that at some point, although it's not mentioned in here, the Plishtim had taken some level of attack towards the Jews, had moved in to territory where the Jews were on that coast. And Shamgar, who is from Shimon, so now we have three tribes represented amongst the Shoftim. Shamgar, who does not seem to be any sort of a force, does not get any sort of mention like Ehud, Shamgar attacks them back without any real weapons. Remember, the Jewish people are not yet established in any real way as an army, although Ehud had an army of some sort. Beats back the Plishtim with uh, farming tools. It's the implication of the, the power of God when it is that the Jews are able to invoke the power of God. So here you got the first three. You got Neil, you got Ehud, you got Shamgar all by virtue of the same cycle, although the cycle by Shamgar is not mentioned, perhaps it's the same cycle as the one with Ehud, and in fact he finishes out the period of time of the 80 years, that's not exactly clear. But you get the cycle, the process, the procession going with the Jewish people, behaving, not behaving, crying out to God, getting a warrior, getting a savior, being saved, and then repeating the process over and over and over again. We'll see more as we continue into the stories of Devorah, in the following parak in chapter 4.